Love is a many splendored thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. One of the most abused words in our world, and yet, of course, one of the best words in our world. Love. But what is true love? What does true love look like? What does true love look like in the context of gospel? And what does it look like in the context of ministry as well? And the issue of love is one that is dividing, destroying churches and our society all over the world. So many things are done in the name of love. I remember a man who killed his children and said that he acted out of love. Well, of course he didn't. Of course that's evil. But that was his excuse. I've heard so many people say, well, I'm leaving my wife or my husband because of love for another person or the lack of love for that person. People steal in the name of love. People do all sorts of evil things in the name of love. And love confuses us in the world and in the church as well. You probably know that the church, especially in the Western world, is splintering and decaying because of a poor understanding of love, basically. So that love means that we accept anyone and everyone for whatever purpose or lifestyle or uh, even religion. So there are Christians in our world, and even within the Anglican communion, so-called, that would say, well, we don't have mission because God's love means that everyone will go to heaven. It was an appalling idea and so offensive to Jesus Christ. And that we accept any lifestyle that anyone wants to live in any sort of relationship, the parameters or the boundaries get broader and broader in many people's thinking. And that's because of love, so they say. Love becomes tolerance and tolerance becomes intolerance of anything that used to be holy and right and good. And our, and our Anglican church in the world, along with other denominations, not just in Anglican terms, is falling apart because of abusing the word of love. And so it seems to me, for example, that the famous passage that goes like this is becoming so important. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not tell you that something you're doing is wrong. Love accepts you without challenge. Love affirms your lifestyle because God made everything good. Love is not boastful. So therefore, love does not say that my way is right and that yours is wrong. Love is not exclusive. Love is inclusive of anyone, whatever they believe or practice. Love says anything goes. Now, you know that passage, I'm sure. It comes from 1 Corruptions 13. <laughs> the issue of love is one that has been woven not, not just in 1 Corinthians, but in 2 Corinthians. And today we come to the end of this series that's gone for several weeks, I think, through this extraordinary letter. And now as we come to the end, that theme of love recurs yet again. We've seen it the last two weeks when I've been here, and it's been there periodically in the earlier weeks of the series as well. For what we see in Paul as he defends himself over these past two passages and again continues with that today, 
is that Paul is defending himself on the issue, or one of the issues in particular, is the issue of love, and right love. Love understood in God's terms, not in the world's terms. And here we see in Paul's ministry, as we've seen in the last weeks, divine love, God's love, gospel love, is costly, is painful, is tough and hard. And what Paul is trying to defend here is not really himself primarily, but is to defend an understanding of the gospel and gospel love. You will know if you've been here recent weeks that the Corinthian church, with Paul has been away from for some time, is being infiltrated by false teachers. Whether they've arisen within the church and are trying to take it over, or whether they're coming from outside, we're, we're not exactly certain, but false teachers arise maybe even from both directions. And these false teachers, these so-called super-apostles, these hyper-apostles, arriving no doubt with their underpants on the outside and a black cape around their neck or something like that, they're accusing Paul of being an inferior apostle. And one of the reasons for that is, is his lifestyle. He's a man who's been beaten and imprisoned. He, he doesn't look the epitome of success. That's what we've seen the past two weeks, for example. They suggest that Paul is somehow deceptive in undermining these Corinthians, misleading them. And they twist their argument to say, Paul doesn't love you. Paul doesn't care for you. Paul's only on about himself. Now, of course, none of that is true. Their words are deceptive, and the Corinthians are being seduced by their flattery and by their attention and by their false message as well. And what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is that Paul has launched an astonishing self-defense, which has gone on and on. I mean, when we read today's passage, if you've been here the last two weeks, you think, oh, is he still going on? Is this still continuing? And we might misunderstand that, that Paul has been so absorbed about his own reputation, but not at all. For as we've seen last week and the week before, at least when I've been preaching here, and we see again in this passage, Paul defends himself for a bigger purpose. He's not really fussed primarily about his own reputation. Paul's defending himself because the gospel is at stake. Because the reputation of Jesus Christ and God the Father are at stake. And therefore, to defend the gospel, Paul is prepared even to act foolishly to defend himself. The gospel is under attack, and the other reason that has provoked this lengthy uh, self-defense, let's call it, is because Paul does love the Corinthians. Because it's the Corinthians' ultimate good that is at stake as well. So, as we've seen, Paul has been indulging in a little, what he calls foolishness. The foolishness of boasting, though he inverts that idea, as we've seen. What I mean is this, those super apostles have come, they're boastful about themselves, and Paul's engaging at their level, but actually subverting their boastfulness. Because Paul has been boasting in his weakness. Paul's been boasting about his, his shame and his imprisonments and so on. And so he's played their game, but he's turned it on its head. But he continues in verse 11, I've been a fool. 
he, he commented earlier on, of course, that I, I must go on boasting at the beginning of chapter 12, though there's nothing in it. I'll go on and, and speak about other things. And then earlier, when in chapter 11, he speaks about, I, I will be a fool. I'll answer a fool according to their folly, we could say. And so he says in verse 11, I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. That is, the Corinthians seem to be drifting away from Paul. The false apostles are driving a wedge between them. They're not backing Paul up. They're not commending him. They're being beguiled by these false teachers who are now in their midst. Paul hasn't liked that, so he says, I've been a fool, but I'm not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Now, that in itself is striking. I'm not inferior to them, but I'm nothing. What does that mean they are? Less than nothing. That's the implication. As we've already seen the last two weeks, Paul is prepared, uh, which I like, for a little bit of sarcasm here and there. These false apostles, they're, they're less than nothing. They're not neutral, that is nothing. They are worse. They're destructive. I'm nothing, and therefore I'm better than they are. Paul is not saying, I'm fantastic and they're pretty good. He's saying, I'm nothing. Implication? They're worse than nothing. Yes, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. We know none of that from the Acts of the Apostles, at least in Corinth. And Paul does not boast about those things elsewhere in his letter. We, we could get an understanding that there were signs, maybe miracles and so on, because of the emphasis on some of those signs back in 1 Corinthians, say in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. But Paul doesn't boast about that. It may be part of his ministry, but it's not part of his boast. Because what, there's something that matters much more than that. That's the message of the gospel that Paul preached. I know nothing except Christ crucified among you. Oh, yes, there are other things that a minister pastor does or that an apostle did. But it seems by this that these super apostles are boasting. They boasted in their dreams and revelations we saw last week. And now the implication is that they boast about their signs. We've got more miracles than Paul. We're doing showier things, fancier things. Well, of course, that's still part of the brag and boast of some churches in our world today where some pastors tell you about all the miracles they've performed or all the signs and wonders. Paul's not boasting in that. Yes, they were there. He's not denying that. But that's not the point of comparison that matters. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? It seems that perhaps these false apostles are trying to undermine Paul by saying, Paul, Paul favors the Philippians. Paul's got a soft spot for the Ephesians. He doesn't really care for you Corinthians. Paul's saying no. None of that is true. You're not less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you. We've seen that argument already in the past week or two. That is the argument, perversely it seems, that these false apostles are saying to, saying to the Corinthians, Paul didn't charge you money for his ministry. Therefore, he doesn't care for you or love you. Therefore, he didn't deliver the goods. Paul explained that by saying, of course I didn't because the gospel's free. I'm not going to charge you for it. I'm supported by the churches of Philippi and by my tent making so that the gospel comes to you free. Of course, in ancient Greece, that was not the way it was. 
In ancient Greece, orators walked around getting paid huge sums to say lots of waffle. Still happens today. We just use television more. Well, he says at the end of that verse 13, forgive me this wrong. Here again, he's being sarcastic. It's not a wrong. But forgive me this wrong, if that's what you think it is, if that's what these false apostles are saying that it is. Forgive me this wrong. Well, Paul is about to come to Corinth for the third time. I'm ready to come to you, he says in verse 14, and I will not be a burden. That is, I'm not changing my policy because of what these false apostles are alleging about me. I'm not going to change my policy because you might somehow think that you should be paying me. Not at all. I stuck by my policy in the past and I will not change now. So I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours, but you. You Corinthians are what matters. I'm not in it for the money. I'm not in it for the prestige or the fame. I'm not in it for the comfort, he's saying. I want you, the people. Now, he doesn't mean this in the sense of enslavement or anything like that. He means, I want your hearts to be right with God. I want your lives to be right with God. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Now, it doesn't always work like that, I know. But what Paul is saying is, I'm your parent. And I've invested in you as my children by bringing you to faith, by planting this church, by growing this church, and keeping in touch with his church. You don't have to pay me, but I've invested in you. And I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That is, for your lives. Because what matters more than anything else is not me, but you that you hold fast with the gospel to the end. Notice here something important as well. The people to whom Paul writes, they're Christians, they're believers, they're saints. So Paul's anxiety for them is not that they become Christian, they have become Christian, but notice that his anxiety doesn't end with conversion. Yet how often in the shallow world in which we live, shallow church world so often, people count converts. How many converts have you had? Mission societies, some, thankfully not the one that supports me, but some, are so anxious about numbers. Some church denominations are anxious about numbers. Paul's not. Numbers of converts doesn't matter. It's whether the converts go on to stand mature on the day of Christ's return. For what's the point of converting five million if none of them persevere? So Paul's implying that here. This is a church he started. He doesn't say, ah, oh, hallelujah. There are 40 people who've been converted in Corinth. Now I'll walk away and go somewhere else and leave them because they're saved. But he maintains this ongoing ministry. And the implication of it in both letters to the Corinthians as well as all of Paul's other letters is it doesn't stop yet. It doesn't stop yet. There's no time to say you've made it until the day of Christ's return. On the day when God completes what has begun in them. And so it should be for us. There's a warning to us about the issue of complacency. We who are believers, we who've been converted, we who are involved in ministry, 
ought never to be complacent about ourselves or our friends or others until the day of the Lord's return. For there are people who drift away and give up the Christian faith in every decade of life. We may think that somebody who's arrived as a mature adult, been well grounded in the faith, we can leave them be? No. And the same in reverse about us. I've known people who've given up the faith in their 80s. It's flabbergasting in a way. Astonishing. And that's what Paul's reflecting here. The whole point of this letter is to say, Corinthians, hang on, hold on. Don't give up on the gospel. Persevere to the end. And that should be a challenge to us as well. That we make every effort for ourselves and our friends and our community of church to sustain, encourage and build up each other all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. Well, Paul goes on to say, if I love you more... Am I to be loved less? You see, those false teachers are saying, I don't love you enough, but actually I love you more than they do because they're in it for themselves in some way or other. But I'm in it for you, and I love you more than they do. And if I love you more, does it, why does that mean that you love me less and love them more? Well, sadly, that happens in ministry sometimes. But Paul is trying to make them see that he loves them more than the false apostles do. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Paul has acted with integrity at every point. The false apostles are undermining that in teaching and speaking to these Corinthians and trying to say that somehow Paul has acted with deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? Maybe that's part of the accusation. Oh, Paul sent Titus or Timothy or somebody to you to deceive you. But he didn't take advantage of them. He's never taken advantage of them. I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? The implied answer is, of course not. Did we not act in the same spirit? Of course we did. Did we not take the same steps? Of course. Well, here is a warning for anyone who's in some form of ministry. It is easy in ministry to take advantage of people. It is easy in ministry to take advantage of vulnerable people. And there are plenty of vulnerable people who come to churches. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he implies that as well about the the, the women who are uneducated who are being taken advantage of by false apostles or teachers in Ephesus. And I must say that over the years, there, there are opportunities, several opportunities to take advantage of people when you're a pastor. That could be financially. It it could be with hints and suggestions about the value of the ministry that I've been giving to you or you or you. Very easy for pastors to abuse the people whom they pastor. Financially, emotionally, and so on. I've known people in ministry who, who are so insecure that they're actually codependent in the ministry they offer to other people. What that means is they depend on the other people. They minister in such a way to feed themselves and their ego with people who depend on them. Now, not all of you, most of you are not, in fact, in some form of ministry, but 
I say this for two reasons. For those who have or will have some exercise of ministry, be on guard because it is easy to take advantage of others. But for those of you not in ministry, be on guard that whoever your ministers, pastors, Bible study leaders or counsellors are, make sure they are not taking advantage of you. That is what Paul is emphasising here. He goes on then in verse 19 to continue with more questions, rhetorical questions. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? (laughs) Well, actually, you could easily answer yes to that question because it sounds like a long defense of Paul. But no, in fact, Paul says, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding. It is all for the Corinthians' upbuilding. He loves them. He adds the word beloved at the end of verse 19. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. Uh, What Paul means there, as the verses that follow say, is that when I come, I'll find that you are not, in fact, faithful or moral in your lives. And therefore, if that is the case, then you will not find me as you wish, that is, warm and friendly and so on. I will be needing to rebuke and correct. I'll need to be severe. That's his fear. His fear is that through the false apostles, the morality of their life has somehow eroded. We already know that there were problems of morality. You read back in 1 Corinthians about some of that. And in 2 Corinthians, there are a couple of other hints as well. So Paul, who's coming to meet them, sending this letter in advance to prepare them to meet him and greet him, is warning them about, in what state will I find you? Will you actually be fully right with God, we might say. The issue is an issue of moral maturity, basically, because he lists some of these things. You may not find me as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And I fear that when I come again, may God, my God may humble me before you, And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality and sensuality that they've practiced. That's Paul's fear. You see, false teaching leads to immorality. It's only true gospel teaching that leads or makes a strong connection with moral living as well. And Paul is aware, I suspect, and fearful that in Corinth, in the church, Things like slander, gossip, hostility, conceit, and so on are practiced without rebuke, without correction. That there is still sexual immorality and sensuality and impurity in their lives as well. We've seen hints of some of the gossiping, slandered divisions back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the famous passage about people going after Paul or Peter or Apollos, for example the divisions within the church. Paul is very aware here that the goal of ministry is godliness. It's not simply conversion and forgiveness. There is more. He said it back in chapter 3, that this ministry of the gospel, which is the treasure in clay jars in chapter 4, 
is changing us from one degree of glory into another. That is a moral perfection, a moral correction that the gospel brings. And that's what divine love looks like. Divine love doesn't come to somebody who's sensual and sexually immoral, a gossiper and slanderer, and say, God loves you, keep going. It doesn't say that. And yet so much ministry is like that. So much ministry fails to take the hard step of rebuke. The hardest things I've ever had to do in ministry have been at the level of seeking to rebuke or correct ungodly behavior. It is very, very easy as a minister, even an Australian blunt minister, to back away from that, to cover it over, to ignore it and say somebody else can deal with that, just simply to say, I'll pray about it. And I would say the, the, the majority of times when something serious I've had to confront has led then to people leaving. And that is very hard. A friend of mine significantly involved in church life, when we talked about an issue, disagreeing, he, he cut off all conversation, never spoken to him again. And that happens. You see, ministry is painful, but being in the church of God's people is painful. It's not just for the pastor to do this. We are to teach and admonish one another with the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. So on Sundays, in our small groups, in our conversations and community life, when we see things like sexual immorality, when we see gossip, division, slander, those things going on, when we see jealousy and anger, so often we say, well, I don't really know the motives of the people. I don't really know what's in their heart. I'll back away and not say anything. But love, if it's Christian love, confronts the tough stuff. Because Christian love, God's love, the love that we ought to be demonstrating is seeking the perfection of each other on the day of Christ's return. And that's tough. That's very tough. For we're being changed more and more into the likeness of Christ. I sometimes think of Christian ministry as a being a little bit like Michelangelo. I've got none of his skill at all. But if you see those astonishing statues that he's made, and they're carved out of marble, you think how hard that is to chisel away to make the perfection of David or whoever it is that he's carving. And in a way, Christian ministry, and, and by Christian ministry now, I mean the ministry of all of us for each other, is in part about chiseling away the hard, hard job of chiseling away what needs to be got rid of so that on the day of Christ's return, we are perfect. And not perfect like David the statue, which is magnificent, but perfect in our hearts. Perfect through and through. That's what Paul's wanting for the Corinthians. And, and that's why he loves them so much. His love doesn't stop with what they give him. It doesn't stop with conversion. And so I think there is a warning to us because this is tough. Most of us run away from this. Most of us say, oh, if there's a problem in somebody in our church of gossip and slander and sexual immorality, let the pastor deal with it, if he finds out. But it's our responsibility, mutually. Certainly it is the pastor's. And that's what Paul is concerned about here, as he writes to the Corinthians. 
Well, this is the third time I'm coming to you, he says again. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Whether he's referring to some problem within the church where people are alleging things or whether, in fact, he's building up his own evidence for their wrongdoing or the false teacher's wrongdoing. He says, I warn those who sinned before and all the others, I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. That is, he's offered at least two warnings. And the next time he will not spare them, the warnings will run out. Some say that if you, you know, if you run out, you bring judgment or something like that, then you're not acting like a merciful God would act. But there is a place for church discipline. There is a place where warnings stop. There is a place for excommunication. There is a place for public rebuke sometimes of serious unrepentant sin. It's not when we each fail and lapse. We all do that. But it's about those who keep on persisting, even publicly, in their sinful ways as well. And Paul says, I will not spare them. That You won't like that when I come. But that's what I fear I will need to do. Since you speak, seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Well, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we're also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we'll live by him in the power of God. This model has been Paul's model of ministry through earlier chapters of 2 Corinthians. That is this sort of dynamic, if you like, of death and life, of weakness and power. The gospel is weak. It's the death, the crucifixion of Christ. But the gospel is power because Christ did not remain dead. We come to you weak like the cross, but actually we're coming powerfully because of the resurrection. And that's what Paul is saying here. You've seen me weak. You've seen me worn. You've seen me be comforting. But now when I come, on this third time, be prepared. For if there is unrepentant life and sin and ungodliness in the church, this time I will be strong and powerful. So examine yourselves, he says, and see whether you're in the faith. That's very strong, isn't it? It's not just see whether you're sinning in some way. Are you really in the faith? For if you're persisting in some sin and refusing to repent of it, despite the warnings of Scripture, then it raises a big question. Are you in the faith? Test yourselves. That is, you examine your own hearts and motives here. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? That is, if you are in the faith, Christ is in you, but can you see that? Have you got evidence for the work of Christ in you? Or in fact, is your unrepentant sin evidence that you're not in the faith and you fail the test? There is a place for all of us to have this you know, godly introspection, the examination of our hearts before we confess our sins. And I hope you will find out that we've not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Paul says, if, if people say, I failed, so be it, so long as you've passed the test. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Well, we're glad when we're weak and you are strong. Weakness is not our failure. The false apostles boast in their strength and accuse me of my weakness. So be it. I'm weak. 
I boast in my weakness. We've seen that in the last two weeks as well. But your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you so that when I come, I may not have to be severe. That is, if you take this letter to heart, if you apply it in your lives, if you turn from your sins, if you repent of the false teaching and get rid of the sexual immorality, the gossiping, the slander and so on, then when I come, I won't be severe because this letter will have done its work. But I fear that I'll come and have to be severe in the use of my authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. That's the point of this letter. Paul is preparing to come, a visit he, he is anxious about and fearful about because pastoral discipline is hard and is tough. But he wants to finish on a positive note. Uh, not a positive note that undermines what he's just been saying. But he wants to keep it all, I, I, I suppose, in, in, in the sort of right and godly balance. Finally, brothers and sisters, literally, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. Uh, they're the positives to replace those negatives of gossip and slander and jealousy and so on. That is, when we get rid of something, there's always something right to put in its place. In fact, we pursue what is right to expel what is wrong. He doesn't mean here agree with one another as if truth does not matter. It's agreeing with one another about the gospel, about what does matter, about what is true. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I didn't notice that happening earlier in the service. All the saints greet you. You are part of a wider church body, Christian body. All the saints greet you. Paul's prime motive in writing this letter is that the Corinthians do what is right. As verse 7 says, we pray that you may not do wrong. We're glad when you are strong and your restoration is what we pray for. See, Paul's vision is not immediate. Paul's vision is for the day of Jesus' return. The day when he will so-called walk down the aisle with his bride, the Corinthian church to, uh, sorry, his daughter, the Corinthian church to give as a bride to Christ. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 11 a couple of weeks ago. He loves the Corinthians so much that he's, been, he's prepared to be severe with them. Love is tough, painful sometimes, and costly. He's prepared to be strong because he loves them. And in effect, he's showing them that he loves them more than the false teachers. His ministry is rooted in the love of the gospel. I remember when I became a senior pastor 21 years ago nearly, and uh, a friend who's subsequently died now, uh, then a retired minister, uh, wrote me a note and said, my advice for you is this, simply three words. Love them all. The all's the hardest, but it's godly love that's hard as well. And there are many pastors who don't love their people. There are many Christians who don't love the people in their Bible study groups or home groups or cell groups, whatever they're called. There are many who come to church and they, they don't love. I mean, in a biggish church, it's hard to know and therefore love everybody. But there is a lack of love. 
But Paul is saying here, gospel life and ministry is about love, godly love, that is tough, like the love that God expressed in the prophet Hosea in the first reading that we heard. And he loves the Corinthians so much, and he's driven by the love of Christ so much, that he's writing this tough letter to them. And he keeps drawing them to the cross because that's where this love is seen, where weakness and death and apparent failure, but expressed in love for their life in the gospel of the cross. But a gospel whose aim is not mere forgiveness, of course. A gospel whose aim is godliness. For whoever's in Christ is a new creation. They've changed from one degree of glory to another. That's the love of the gospel. That's the love of God. And that's the love that a gospel pastor like Paul is demonstrating. And it's the sort of love that we should practice with each other, for each other, now and always. A love that is so remote from liberal, valueless acceptance, which comes so often in church circles under the guise of love. Oh, we accept you, whatever your lifestyle is, whatever your practices are, whatever you believe. That's not love. That's not biblical love. That's emptiness, vacuity. This is a love that's anxious for perfection because that's God's goal for us. In fact, the word perfection is used in these last verses and literally here it means mendedness. Mend your ways. That's what perfection is. And that's why we gather so that we are mending our ways to perfection on the day of Christ's return. This is a love that accepts uh, hardships and weakness. A love that puts others ahead of self. That's what Paul is demonstrating all through this letter. A love that says the hard words and lives the hard words. It's a love of people because of a greater love for Christ. Earlier in this letter, you might remember, Paul said, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he talked about his ministry in these terms in chapter 3. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Our God and Father, by your powerful word we pray, transform us more into the likeness of Christ. May our love for each other be so pure that we're prepared to do the hard things, say and practice the hard things for the sake of others, so that on the day of Christ's return, we all, with unveiled face, will be in his likeness, pure, blameless and irreproachable, giving him all the honor and glory. Amen.